Welcome to the Open Apple Podcast, where we celebrate the Apple II. Whether you're a longtime user, a nostalgic visitor, or a newcomer to the community, join us as we share news and memories of Steve Wozniak's most famous personal computer. All right, so with us here, well, <laughs> with me here today is Blondie Hacks herself, Quinn Dunkey. Hello, Quinn. Hi, Mike. How are you? I am fabulous, and I am very glad to be here. Good. Um, why are you here? Because uh, I like me some Apple, too. Oh, you do? Because See, I know you from, from another podcast that I do, the No Quarter thing that I do with Carrington. Mm. Um, I think that's where we started emailing back and forth about cabinets and things like that. So it wasn't actually until a little bit later that I discovered that you also were a big Apple II person. How far back does your love of Apple II go? Uh, well, all the way, I guess. Um, yeah, it's it's funny. a long way. It is a long way. I'm, I'm very old, you know. <laughs> Yeah, I, uh, people always ask me, "Oh, when did you get into technology?" And and I don't think I, I don't think there was a time when I wasn't. Uh, so yeah, I think I think I was four or five years old when my uh, parents brought home an Apple II Plus, and uh, I think that was that would have been like 1979 or 1980, I guess. Sounds and, about right. Yeah. Yeah. So I, I think it was fairly new, but not brand new at the time. This request, and um, I think it was intended they. My parents weren't sure what they were going to do with it, but they, they kind of had this sense that these computer things might not be a fad, so maybe uh, maybe they should look into it. And uh, so they thought, well, maybe my dad could use it for his business, um, or you know, maybe my sister, who's four years older than me, might be into it. So they brought it home under one of those pretenses, and it was really too early to try and run a small business on them. The software wasn't there and so on yet, um, and my sister had no interest in it at all. And... As my mom likes to say, I climbed up on the stool one day and, and haven't got off since. Um, <laughs> so it's probably best for your sister then that, that she wasn't interested because it's not like she would have got any time on the thing. Not at all. No, uh, <laughs> it was like it was like that uh, Planet of the Apes moment. I mean, when that screen, <laughs> that screen lit up and there was angels singing, and I just knew this is this this was my thing. This was it. So I started programming right away and uh, learned, learned some basic and wrote a game when I was uh, I guess it was the following year, so I guess I would have been six, and then just never stopped. So, what what game did you write? Uh, so it was uh, it was a railroad simulator sort of thing. Because um, I was also into trains at the time. And, sure. Uh, <laughs> Who isn't? Yeah, right. They're cool, right? I mean, come on. Yeah. So, but yeah, so it was so early that I hadn't uh, I hadn't really learned how to take input yet. Uh, as most uh, software engineers will tell you, there's these sort of these moments in your uh, in your education where certain light bulbs go on, uh, whether it's, uh, you know, sorting algorithms or, or pointers or object-oriented uh, concepts, you know, there's sort of key concepts in, in, in programming, and uh, so that was sort of my very, very first one of those, this concept there was a difference between input and output, you know, between the computer spitting crap out and waiting for you to do stuff for it, and uh, so I hadn't figured out that out yet, so the quote-unquote game uh, was just sort of a, a, a spew of text uh, of telling you what was happening in the quote-unquote game. So it wasn't, uh, wasn't interactive in the strictest sense. More of a multimedia presentation. Yeah, <laughs> yeah I would say so. Uh, so. But I was pretty pleased with it. So. <laughs> and uh, it's pretty, I, I, I like to think it's still on a disc somewhere, but uh, in my parents' basement, uh, I still have the, that 2 Plus and all of, I think I have all of the floppies that I ever had for it, but I honestly doubt that I saved it because it was one of those things where at the time we didn't think this stuff was important and so and discs were expensive you know it was, yeah they were you know yeah especially when you're 
six. So it's not <laughs> like my parents were, uh, you know, dumping blank floppies on me. So uh, I'm sure that I probably overrode it at some point. But well, someday you'll have to go down to that uh, deep dank basement and dig it all up. Yeah. I imagine I imagine you kind of heading down the stairs with a lantern over your head, <laughs> looking behind you for a Gru as you search for your yes. old discs. Yes, and uh, blow, blowing the dust off them and, and screaming at Aziz for more light. Yeah, yeah exactly. <laughs> nice reference. Thank you, thank you. Um, <laughs> yeah, it's uh, my parents are a couple thousand miles away at the moment, which is unfortunate because otherwise, uh, one of these days, I'm going to figure out how to get that machine back into my hands because I am looking forward to actually doing some archaeology and going through all of those old floppies and seeing which ones are still readable and who knows what I've saved and what I haven't. Could be could be a lot of fun. Yeah, unfortunately, today we have a lot. We have some good, pretty good tools out there to uh, to help recover even bad discs. We can generally get some stuff off. I know there's the that cryoflex thing that's that's pretty good. It sort of bangs away at the bad sectors until it gets something. Um, and there's the EDD plus card and a couple of other things. So you know, even if it doesn't, you know, you turn it on, you get that I/O error. We can still maybe save something from yeah, it. Yeah. Um, cool. Now, how did you go from basic to assembly language and on forth in your career as a programmer? Yeah, well, from uh, so after a couple of forays into basic, I mean, obviously, like like everyone else, it was all about games, and and that, I mean, computers served no other purpose as far as I could tell. Um, <laughs> for all the noise people make about VisiCalc, I think we all know it was really games that were driving the technology forward, and uh, and that's largely still true. Blasphemy. Um, <laughs> Uh, so it became clear pretty quickly that uh, I wasn't going to be able to, to make the games that I wanted to make uh, in BASIC. It was just, it was so slow. <laughs> and uh, yeah, so I started to get into assembly a little bit, and um, I uh, did a couple of uh, forays into that, into 6502 assembly. I did a vertical shooter and uh, never quite got it finished, but um, I worked on that quite a bit. And uh, let's see, by that point I was up to, I had... Uh, an Apple IIc clone, I guess you would call it. Uh, it was the Laser 128EX, and that was kind of a it was kind of a neat thing. It was, um, I mean, I guess it, it was a two, intended to be a 2C clone, but it had a lot of sort of extra bits in it. Uh, you know, it had a you could uh, speed up the CPU. It went up to 3.6 megahertz, and it actually had an expansion slot that, on the side of it, so you could actually stick any standard Apple II expansion card on the sides, just hanging off in space. Huh, wow. Like for you to put your drink on and break it off or <laughs> electrocute yourself or whatever, which is a pretty bold sort of industrial design. But to, and it actually had a, a memory expansion area inside it. So you could actually take the plastic case apart and install RAM chips inside it, uh, which was pretty crazy. So, yeah, it had a lot of neat, neat features. Yeah, that was the thing about the clones is that you know, because they had to differentiate themselves and be better than the original in order to make sales, when you bought these things, it was you know generally six months to a year after the original came out. But there was so much more neat stuff built in. You know, you were saying the the three point six megahertz acceleration and, and these expansion ports. It's great stuff. Yeah, yeah, it was. I mean, at the time, it made a compelling case. I mean, it was. It had all these extra features, and it had a numeric keypad, and it was still compatible with all the two C peripherals, like the little. The little L-shaped RF modulator that the 2C had, that actually worked on the laser because it had the same shape to the back of the case, like they thought of that. So, yeah, it was, and it was, I think, like half the price or even a third of the 2C. So, 
but the funny thing is, even then, I mean, Apple Apple really had that style down, and I wanted a two C so badly. <laughs> so, <laughs> and I liked it. I liked my laser, uh, and I was glad to have it. But uh, boy, deep down, I really wanted that two C, and I still do to this day. I'm still looking for one. <laughs> yeah, there's definitely there's definitely something about the, that that frog design. It it really is. It's it's beautiful. Yeah, I'm looking. I'm uh, keeping my eye for for the two C plus. That's what I would really like. Kind of watching eBay, but I mean they're out there, but they're all kind of going for silly prices. So I'm looking for one that's sort of reasonable. So uh, so yeah, the two uh, there. So the laser one twenty eight is also still in my parents' basement. And uh, after that, uh, I got an Apple II GS secondhand. That was probably my favorite, uh, possibly my favorite computer of all time. Um, that thing was just an absolute joy. Everything it did just put a smile on your face. So to me, that was really the uh, the peak of, of what I feel like Steve Wozniak was kind of hoping the Apple II might someday be, because, uh, uh, yeah, that machine was just kind of magical. <laughs> yeah, I think that was the machine that he, you know, he left the company for a little while and he had that plane crash and... When he came back, I, I think that was he did work did a lot of work on the I don't know how much, but I, he did work on the, the two GS there, and so I, I think it's it's pretty obvious, you know, you can see his fingerprints in that. I, I remember I walked into um, this would have been in high school '86, yeah, high school. So I walked into a local Egghead store, and they had just set one of these things up, and my dad was with me, and he took one look at that and said, "That's that's a great computer, and Apple will never ever ever support that, so I'm not going to buy it because it had all the stuff that Mac didn't. It was it." Mac generally kind of felt slow. I mean, it had that 8 megahertz Motorola processor, but it was still sort of slow for what it did. Uh, it didn't have color, and, and it wasn't compatible with everybody's uh, software collection. Um, and, and so he's like, there's no way. I'm not buying that. Sorry. So <laughs> Yeah, that was definitely prescient because, yeah, the 2GS sure took it on the chin right after it was launched. I think most of those ended up going to to schools and their various education packages, and they and in schools they were just run as you know um, as two E's at two point eight megahertz. Yeah, yeah, which was kind of sad. And uh, yeah, there, I mean, the rumors were who knows how true this is. The rumors were that they crippled the the clock speed intentionally just so it wouldn't compete too much with the Mac. Because if it had been a faster, it would have been it would have been a no brainer for a lot of people, I think. Because yeah. It, color and it was backwards compatible and I mean, it was this great sound and great graphics i mean yeah because that uh, i mean the clock speed was the achilles heel on that thing you know that was the only thing holding it back from just being you know an amiga killer an atari st killer you know even an early pc killer so the decision to put the 65816 chip the western digital chip in there instead of the Motorola, like those those other machines, was was again like you know we need to make sure this doesn't compete with the Macintosh, yeah. and, and uh, you know that's why the today you can buy the, the Transwarp accelerators and they're very very expensive. <laughs> yeah, so the my my two GS is still in my parents' basement also. And, <laughs> you got uh, a lot down there in that basement. Yes, my mom gives me dirty looks every time we come to visit. <laughs> Uh, and yeah, it's totally tricked out. So I've got the uh, the Ram Factor in there, or the Ram Fast in there, and I've got uh, the Transwarp GS in there, and uh, I've got the Sonic Blaster in there. Um, so yeah, it was it's 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 an awesome two GS. I've got a big old hard drive in it. Who knows how much that still works? But I'm looking forward to digging that out one of these days and finding out. You have to bring it to Kansas Fest. Yeah, well, it's funny you should mention that. Uh, I'm actually. Uh, just looking at the Kansas Fest uh, website and thinking about going. Go, go, go. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I don't know if you want to get into this right now, but... Uh, no, well, some... we'll talk more about that later. All but, right, uh, I have some yeah. questions about K-Fest, so let's get into that. 
So you got the 2GS. Now, did you then stick, eventually make the switch to Macintosh, or did you go to PC, or what did you do for your career stuff? Yeah, so I stuck with the GS for a really long time, because it was, uh, you know, I kept going with the, with the writing games all up through the 2E and everything, but it wasn't... Um, wasn't really until the GS where I kind of hit my stride because that was a first machine that was really fast enough to to kind of have really good tools and to really be sort of pleasant to write code on. Uh, you know, you could write in C comfortably. I mean, the compiler was, you know, slow as, as I'll get out, but it was, at least you had something there. You know, you could, it was plausible to, to write code in C on it um, and throw an assembly where you needed it. And, you know, it was, uh, and I had, I ran um, the uh, Orca environment on it. Um, mm-hmm. So Orca C and Orca M, and they had their sort of GNU-like uh, shell environment, uh, which I forget what they called it now. I think it was GNOME or something. Yeah, uh, GNO, yeah, GNO, I think was, yeah. Yeah, yeah, so I ran that, and that sort of made, the, made it into a really nice machine to develop on. It was a great environment, very you know, sort of Unix-like development environment. Uh, great compiler, great assembler. So. so I ran that for a long time, and that was good enough that... Uh, uh, I stuck with that for a really long time, well into the point where my friends were all on PCs and so on. Uh, so I did eventually go switch to the Mac. My mom actually bought a PowerBook 100, uh, very first PowerBook. That thing was a lot of fun, actually. It had the had the little uh, external floppy drive with the little cable on it. it had the, like the cable the size of a baby's arm that you plugged into the back. And, <laughs> a big giant and, dongle. Yeah, yeah, and it had the little flip up flip up door that was also a kickstand and it was it was all very nicely designed and had the cool the cool trackball and and that I mean that was the first one I think well I guess the Mac portable maybe was first where it had the keyboard pushed forward and the trackball down in the middle and had a place for to rest your hands. I mean that's you know the standard laptop layout now but at the time that was a big deal. Everyone thought it was funny that the keyboard was pushed up and that there was blank space at the bottom. I remember, yeah, I was reading about how, how everyone thought Apple was nuts because of that. Yeah, yeah, and at the time it did look a little ridiculous. There was this big wasted space, but of course now it's obviously the right way to do it. <laughs> so, uh, so yeah, I kind of switched to the Mac at that point, and uh, of course, you know, with that came a lot more sophisticated development environments. Uh, you know, you could run, uh, you could do C and I ran uh, the Think C environment on it, uh, which was Symantec. I think developed that. And from there, I went to my second and last Mac, which was the Centris uh, uh, 660 AV. Ooh, nice machine! And uh, yeah, that was it. Was kind of a bang for the buck machine. You know, it didn't didn't cost a lot, but was capable of crazy science fiction stuff. Like, <laughs> I mean, they had that DSP in there that would just do crazy things that Max wouldn't do again for years later. You know, it would emulate a modem in software, so I never you didn't need a modem for it. You just had to plug in this adapter that connected the phone jack to the DSP, and it would just emulate whatever modem you wanted. Uh, it would do uh, all kinds of speech recognition and synthesis stuff uh, way before Siri. Uh, you could talk to it and ask it to do stuff for you. It would read your email to you. Uh, it would uh, it would overlay video, live video on your display. Uh, so I used to watch TV in the corner, like at fifty percent alpha, while I was doing schoolwork. Wow, <laughs> I nice. mean, yeah, like just crazy technical stunts like that that served no useful purpose, but it was just sort of amazing. And yeah, Max stopped doing stuff like that. Uh, so yeah, and then sometime shortly after System Seven Point One, uh, Mac OS just got so bad uh, yeah. that I just I just couldn't put up with it anymore. That ridiculousness with extensions and got so everything was so slow and unstable and the multitasking was terrible and 
So I basically gave up on it until uh, OS ten Jaguar. Um, that then I took another look at Max and was like, oh okay, they got their act together here. Hmm. So OS ten was really really good all of a sudden. So uh, and I've been been back ever since. Now getting back to the the Apple II stuff for just a minute here. I'm, I'm looking at your webpage as we're talking here. Why don't you tell me about Veronica? Well, I mean, yeah, owning the Apple II was, was really formative for a lot of reasons. Obviously, being, just being a computer that you could do stuff with in 1979 was amazing. It was also amazing to me was the story behind it, you know, that it was just these two guys that had done this, and in particular that Steve Wozniak had designed and built this, this thing by himself, um, that he just sat down in his garage one day and decided to build a computer and did it. And uh, not having any hardware background to speak of, that was always just sort of magic to me. Uh, I always understood software. Software just sort of made intuitive sense to me, but hardware was just always magic to me. Could get all the way down to the assembly language, and then below that, it was there be dragons. I just I never. I guess that's that's kind of how it goes. You're either software or hardware, and unless you make a conscious de- decision to cross that line, it's sort of a mystery on the other side of the fence. Yeah, and there it, there does seem to be something to it where one or the other is intuitive to you and rarely do you find people for whom that's true of both i mean since i've gotten more into hardware and i've met lots of hardware people and hung out in hardware forums to most of them software is just a bizarre mystery and and or just a waste of time uh just the, the, the interest and or sort of intuitive grasp of it just isn't there and there's definitely a some sort of differences in how you approach a problem along the lines of for example in hardware everything's happening at the same time you need to be thinking kind of of the whole thing as a system whereas in software you tend to want to do the opposite you want to kind of break it down and, and things happen more sequentially so and then there's a lot of common ground just because they're both engineering problems and engineering well, sure. problems are solved certain ways you know you want to have manageable components that talk to each other through isolated interfaces and so on you know there's there's a lot of common ground as well but so long story short um yeah a couple of years ago i decided uh, i wanted to know it had always been a mystery how steve could sit down and do that and i wanted to know if i could do that if i just put my mind to it because i just i really wanted to to have that experience of building a computer from nothing uh, or from a handful of chips similar to what he had done. So I kind of dove in with uh, basically no formal training in electrical engineering. Um, I just kind of dove in. I stepped, I bought a couple of 6502s on eBay. and uh, just, <laughs> Of course you did. Yeah, just, <laughs> and just I looked at the data sheet and plugged them in and, and turned them on and, and started poking around and, uh, and just built on it from there. And over the course of, I think, it, I guess it's probably been close to five years now at this point. It's now the point where, so the project became Veronica, and uh, Veronica is my homebrew 8-bit computer. My goal was to get it to what I considered a a usable computer, which to me means a computer that you can use to write code for itself. Uh, You know, similar to how you can turn on an Apple II and it, you know, dumps you into a ROM monitor prompt and there's the mini-assembler and you can write code, modify memory and put code in memory and jump to that code and it will run it. That is a you know a self-programmable computer because once you've got that, now everything else is just a software problem, right? Now, okay, now you can build an assembler, you can build an operating system, blah, yada, yada, yada. So, yada, 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 Windows NT, right? So, <laughs> right. <laughs> and all that stuff is not very interesting to me because I've spent my whole career, you know, writing software. So, that's, sure. that stuff's all a solved problem to, to me. So, and yeah, so just this year, actually, uh, Veronica reached that point where... Uh, you can turn it on, and you get a prompt, a ROM monitor, and there's a series of ROM monitor commands for viewing memory, and you can modify memory, and execute code, 
and there's keyboard, and there's game pads, and there's uh, VGA graphics, and you know all the stuff that kind of is necessary to, to, to make that happen. So, and, you know, obviously it was a, it was a sort of a different problem I was solving than what Steve Wozniak had solved because he was doing it with 1979 chips, whereas uh, I'm doing everything first of all with some newer chips that he wouldn't have had. But also, I kind of have a different problem to solve because I have to make it work in a modern environment, which turned out to be pretty much the biggest part of the challenge. You know, for example, the keyboard, Steve could just say, well, I'll just write a, put some chips together to, to scan a keyboard matrix and have it spit out data in a format that's handy for me. And I couldn't really do that unless I wanted to build a keyboard from scratch. So I needed to talk to a USB keyboard. So now you need a whole bunch of chips to somehow interface a USB keyboard to, you know, an 8-bit CPU from 1979. So uh, I kind of had to, I, I think of it as taking a 6502 and, and wrapping it in a 1980s bubble. Uh, <laughs> the, the chip has to think it's in 1980 and everything about, above it has to not be. So uh, and it's similar for the video display. The video display was easily the most challenging part of it, uh, as probably it was for the Apple II. Uh, the more I read about the history of the development of those computers, they were all video generators, frankly. With some C- with a particular CPU in it, whatever was cheapest, and a keyboard attached to it. But really, it was it was about the video generators. That's the hardest part of the problem by far, and that's what distinguished all the 8-bit home computers from each other was the quality and nature of their video generators. So for me, it was about a two-year process to do that. And uh, again, largely the difficulty was because I had to generate VGA. The 8-bit computers were all composite and. Honestly, I don't have anything in my house that anymore that will read a composite video signal. So, I mean, even my TV doesn't have... My TV's got HDMI ports on it and a VGA port. I'm not going to attempt to generate HDMI, so... <laughs> right. Uh, it was VGA or nothing. You can still buy, fortunately, VGA monitors, and most stuff still has a VGA port on it. But even that, I mean, what's next? You know, Thunderbolt video? <laughs> I don't know. I don't know, so... Are you working clean room where you're not referring to any of Waz's old – because Waz documented everything and, and there's plenty of documentation out there now on how the Apple II was developed and schematics and, and his handwritten code and stuff like that. Are you, are you referencing any of that or is this sort of just like I'm going to do this all on my own and hopefully I will arrive at sort of the same place that Waz did? I – I made a fairly conscious effort not to read anything about small computer design practices, and because I really did want to try and learn and figure everything out as much as I could myself. Uh, I would start to look stuff up when I got stuck, but as much as possible, I tried to just kind of f- think about how I think it should work and just do it that way and see if I can get that to work. And in hindsight, I think that was a mistake uh, because I spent weeks and even months stuck on problems that uh, have obvious solutions if you do it the right way in the first place. Um, a classic example of that is the way that Waz interfaced video memory uh, with the CPU. You know, that's a can be a very difficult problem uh, because, of course, the the video generator needs to be scanning memory very frequently and constantly to, in order to render the screen without any kind of flickering or anything. Uh, but the CPU wants to be able to write into that same memory, and so you have to kind of get those two to share that memory. And that's just a classically hard problem in both hardware and software. You know, two processes sharing two threads in software sharing memory is hard to get right, and two uh, units of hardware sharing the same RAM chip is hard to get right. And, uh, you know, the way Waz did it, 
was to kind of do things on alternate clock cycles because the 6502 has this kind of unique pattern of clock cycles that it uses to, to access memory. And there's kind of this little dead zone where this CPU is busy doing stuff internally. So Waz's sort of inspiration there was to grab those little moments of dead time on the bus for the video generator to go in and pull out the, uh, the, the memory, uh, read the memory for, for, for the video. The, the final moment of genius there uh, is that it also has the effect of refreshing the dynamic RAM because, you know, Waz used DRAM, which at the time was kind of a bold choice because uh, it's cheaper, but it has to be constantly refreshed or the, the, the bits go away in it. It's not like static RAM where you can write data into it and as long as power is there, it'll remember that. DRAM, you actually have to constantly refresh it even though the power is still on uh, where it forgets. So Waz kind of solved all those, you know, that whole mess of problems with one really elegant solution. And if I had known that, I could have done at least something similar and saved myself many, many months of banging my head against the wall trying to figure out a way to do this, you know, how to solve the same problem. So in the end, I ended up doing it in kind of a classically software way, which is sort of speaks to my background. But, you know, in, in, in Veronica, the uh, CPU and the uh, video generator uh, talk to each other through a narrow pipe. Uh, they send commands back and forth, uh, sort of two-byte commands and parameters, uh, similar to how like an OpenGL rendering engine works, where the OpenGL rendering engine, or like a 3D accelerator on a modern computer, uh, where the 3D renderer is basically a standalone computer, and it's just receiving little commands from the main computer through a narrow pipe. Uh, and that narrow pipe in Veronica is a dual-port RAM, which is pretty high-tech stuff that Waz wouldn't, either wouldn't have had access to or would have been far too expensive for him to use. So um, dual-port RAM is you know, kind of this magic bullet that solves this problem of different systems sharing memory. And you've got this all working now. Yeah, it all works. Uh, you can, like I say, you can power it up. There's a USB keyboard. There's uh, I threw on some Nintendo gamepads just for fun because they have a really simple interface. Um, and I put uh, Pong in ROM because why not? Um, just to sort of exercise the graphics engine. There's kind of a, some simple sprites that you can uh, move around, and there's text rendering. So yeah, you can fire it up and write some code or play Pong, and that's uh, that's all it does. Well, that's got to be a pretty big sense of accomplishment. Yeah, it's uh, like I say, it's been kind of a lifelong dream to, to have something like that, and uh, I learned so much doing it. I can't even. I can't even remember all, all of it, how much that I learned. <laughs> so, like, sometimes I go in there and I, I take the back off and I pull out some of the cards and uh, it's got some, sort of a backplane design with the various modules plugged into it, and CPU board, and RAM, and ROM, and sometimes I pull the cards out and I honestly can't remember how some of it works now <laughs> because it's sort of like I, I solved the problem and it was kind of moved on to the next one and uh, it's easy to forget how much work it really was to get to where you are. Well, congratulations. <laughs> well, thank you. Oh, uh, one last question about that. Veronica, would that be because of a certain television show? It would be. I am a shameless, shameless fan. One of the advantages of living in uh, Los Angeles is we get to go to stuff like the uh, cast reunion party that they held right before the premiere of the new movie. I got to go to a Q&A with, uh, with Kristen Bell and the rest of the cast, and it was fantastic. Get what's new and exciting in retro computing with two news. Well, as I said in the introduction, co-host of the show, Ken Gagney, has moved on to bigger and better things. Um, he hasn't publicly commented on 
his reasons for doing that, so I won't comment on them either. But I will say that uh, I still subscribe to and read his Juice GS magazine uh, every quarter, and it looks like number two has just shipped. Vol I'm sorry, uh, volume 19, number two for June 2014 has just shipped. It's not in your mailbox yet. You can go to the web page and, and read about what you're going to get to read about when it, when it shows up. Uh, a lot of interesting articles this month. Let's see, David Schmidt talks about his uh, development of ADT Pro, which has, released, has, has reached version 2.0.0. And uh, since we're talking about that, 2.0, I guess, includes some new stuff for the Apple III, if you're into that sort of thing, which I am. Uh, there's also, I guess, some work that's gone into making it work with the Uther Card 2, which is the, the new Ethernet card that's forthcoming from a2retrosystems.com. I know that beta units have shipped... And um, David Finnegan over at MacGooey.com has a nice review on this upcoming card. Now, I know as of February, I think, was when they said that they were shipping the, the beta units out to, to people. And so I, I'm wondering if the delay here is because they're looking forward to maybe doing a Kansas Fest release. I hope so. That'd be great. Andy Malloy has reviewed vintage game consoles and inside look at Apple Atari Commodore, Nintendo, and the greatest gaming platforms of all time. Ken Gagne has reviewed a couple of documentaries about chiptune music. There's a whole bunch of stuff in this this magazine, and frankly, if you aren't subscribe, if you aren't a subscriber, you're really missing out. So, are you a subscriber, Quinn? I am not, but it's on my to-do list for sure. I, uh, I know I'm missing out by not, uh, not doing that. Well, if Ken were here, he would he would chide you. Well, with good reason. Uh, let's see what else do we have here. Got some hardware news. Uh, Mike Willegal, um, you may know that name as the guy who has done the, the great Apple One reproduction boards. Um, I don't know if any of those are currently available. He does limited runs every now and then. And the great thing about his Apple One reproductions is is he tries to... I don't think he sells the parts kits anymore. You just get the bare board from him, but he refers you to another company that will sell you a bag of the parts that you need to solder on there, and the parts, I guess, are as close to 1977 sourced as possible. So your your reproduction can look as real as, as the real thing. Um, if you saw the Jobs movie last summer, uh, Ashton Kutcher's character and, and Josh Gad's character, they're working on the Apple One boards. Those are, those are Mike's boards. Oh, that's interesting. That must be a real threat when something gets as valuable as the Apple One has become. People are going to start to counterfeit them. Oh, yeah, I imagine so. Because, you know, I mean, if they're selling for half a million dollars, people will do a lot for, for money like that. I'll do a lot for half of that. <laughs> Mike has worked on, I think his latest project is the Swift card. Now, the Swift card is a reproduction of uh, Jeff Raskin's Swift designs. Um, now, I'm not as familiar with the Swift hardware. I think... I think Raskin kind of was more of a Macintosh guy, and that's where his designs went. I, um, but as, as I understand it, the Swift machine w was his vision of, of a new way to work with information and hyperlinks and things like that. Uh, Quinn, do you know anything about the Swift? Yeah, a little bit. I got really interested in it after I saw a video, I think, from VCF East, maybe. Uh, they gave a demo of it, and uh, and yeah, it's really interesting. Uh, you know, it's easy for us to take for granted how computers work nowadays, you know, the sort of basic flow of you have applications and you have documents and you have long-term storage and short-term storage and, uh, you know, how keyboards are basically used to, to enter data. And it's easy to forget that, that 
it wasn't always obvious that this is how it should be. And uh, so this is one of those early experiments, really thinking laterally, uh, way outside the box. Uh, it's frankly a lot like we're kind of moving towards things now where, uh, you know, with Spotlight and Google Desktop and things where the idea is that all of your data is in a big magic lump somewhere and you just search for everything you want. And uh, that's basically what the Swift card was. It was kind of a prescient sort of look at that way of doing things. It was kind of hampered by disk space. You know, it was limited to a single disk was a unit of memory and, you know, had some other weird issues, but really cool ideas. Uh, the video is well worth watching. Yeah, I think that was Mike himself that gave that demonstration at uh, VCF oh, okay. cool. 9.1. So if, if you're interested in, in sort of experimenting and playing around with, with what Jeff had in mind for a possible vision of, of the future of computing, definitely check out those cards from Mike. Andrew Weber has done a second run of his TDX stereo card for the Apple IIGS now. This isn't, I guess, a sound card in the traditional sense. So, I, And I forgot to look up the details of why this is the case, but the Apple IIGS generates sound in stereo, and then the signal is combined into a mono for output. And it may have been because of the lawsuit uh, when, when the Beatles publishing company, Apple Records, sued them. Part of the settlement was that Apple wouldn't get into digital music and there was limitations on what they would do in hardware and software. So I, I think maybe the 2GS now, your standard 2GS off the shelf is going to output sound in mono, which is fine. It still sounds great. But if you get one of Andrew's cards, this demuxes the, the signal back into stereo sound. And, and it's definitely worth the upgrade. Yeah, it makes a huge difference. I mean, unlike, say, a Mockingboard for an Apple IIe, everything benefits from stereo on the GS. I have the, uh, like I say, my original one has the Sonic Blaster in it, and it's it's fantastic. I mean, all, it, basically every game just sounds fantastic, uh, and especially the demo scene really took advantage of that. You know, all the FTA demos and, and so on just sound incredible. Um, Nishida Radio is a, a Japanese outfit. They it looks like they've announced that they're working on a working VGA adapter for the Apple IIc. A couple of years ago at Kansas Fest, there were two German gentlemen, I think they were German, showed up and they had a, a, a very small run of VGA output devices that you could attach to your Apple II and get, get good VGA output, and those sold out immediately. And there's not really been anything on the market since then. And so this is actually really great news that, that something is being worked on because, you know, as, as you mentioned, when you don't have anything in your house that'll run v, uh, composite signals anymore, and I don't think I do either, at least not working. Mm -hmm. And I'm sure that that's the case for a lot of people. And as these, as these, these old CRTs age and, and begin to break down, you're sort of left with not much of, not much in, in the way of options other than, finding expensive monitors on, on eBay. And, you know, you got to deal with, with storing any of these CRTs that are not in use. And if you're like me and you kind of collect stuff, you, you get a storage unit that's, that fills up really quickly with big, heavy monitors. So, so having the ability to output to like a flat panel and getting a good VGA signal for the graphics would be a wonderful thing. Yeah, that's uh, that's huge VGA especially. And yeah, Nishida Radio, that guy's a wizard. I, he, he's got stuff on his site that is it's everything that you hope someone would make, and, uh, and he's making it. And uh, yeah, so it's just similar to, to the problem I had with Veronica of having to, to wrap the 6502 in an 80s bubble. You know, our vintage computers, it's the same thing. We kind of have to wrap them in a bubble that's constantly getting updated because, you know, the computers are going to stay working for 
probably in a decade still, but it's the, it's the disk drives and the monitors and everything around the computer that fails and needs constant upgrading. Now, I, I don't know that much about hardware design. Do you think the work that you've done with Veronica could eventually be adapted to some sort of VGA output for existing Apple computers? Uh, not the VGA portion, but a lot of the other stuff could for sure. Uh, you know, my USB keyboard interface, my Nintendo gamepad interface, uh, that stuff would actually be pretty easy to convert over to Apple II because the bus structure of Veronica is almost identical to the Apple II uh, because, you know, it's based on 6502 and there's sort of one obvious right way to build your bus and your, your memory mapping and so on once you've committed to that chipset. So a lot of that stuff would be easy to convert. The VGA interface is a little too weird and, frankly, isn't that good. So I wouldn't, <laughs> I wouldn't inflict it on the Apple II in any case. Now, it, it, is it true that Nishida Radio is taking a break? I heard a rumor that, that he might be taking a break from making stuff for a while. Um, you know, I don't know. Let's look. I hope that's not true, because he's doing a great service. Yeah, that would be disappointing. Um, we'll definitely check that out and, and include a note in our, our show notes one way or the other on that. But even if Nishida Radio stops selling stuff, selling things related to the Apple II, uh, we do have some some good news on, on that front. Uh, Ultimate Apple II and ReactiveMicro.com, they're sort of sister stores. They They have reopened for business. Uh, which is great because for a long time they were the only place to go if you needed a ROM for your for your SCSI card burn or something like that, or if you if you had if you have a Transwarp and it's stock and you want you want to go 14 megahertz instead of seven megahertz, they would do that for you. And and when they went when they closed their business for a little while, there was a really a big vacuum there. It was sort of frustrating to <laughs> it was especially frustrating for me because they didn't take their stores down. So you could go and look at the stuff that you could no longer buy from them. Oh, that was the worst. I used to Google <laughs> stuff, think trying to solve problems with Apple IIs, and I, their stuff would come up in the search results. And uh, it was like a big bucket of puppies on the other side of bulletproof glass. <laughs> could look, but not touch. But they're back in business now. I don't know if they're up 100% to, to the inventory levels that they were before. Um, I know that Ultimate Apple II is selling a couple of items, but not everything in their inventory. Um, and Reactive Micro might be the same way. You'll have to contact them if there's anything that you want and you're not sure about. But it's great news that they're back. That is terrific news. It, is it true that they could overclock a Transwarp to 14 megahertz? Yeah. Wow, that's that's remarkable because mine runs at 7, the factory, and it you could make toast on it. So I'm really <laughs> curious how they double the clock speed on that thing. Yeah, I think the fastest... The fastest working transwarp that I've seen was at 18 megahertz. Oh. Now, I, I guess these, uh, because of the, the, the vagaries of board production back in the 80s, and, and I don't know if there was some weird code stuff going on there, not every board can go 18 megahertz. That's a very mm. rare thing. Mm. Um, once you start getting up into the higher, you know, 15, 16, you, get, you run into the boards that just won't go beyond a certain speed. But I think most boards you can push to 14 reliably without without too much work and it's it's a standard a standard set of fixes uh and updates and they would do those for you for you know a set amount i forget what it was and definitely well worth it if you if you want your 2gs running it you know as fast as it'll go oh yeah 14 megahertz would just scream that's that's amazing it is sort of funny to to watch the games that that used to rely on the CPU signal for timing, you know, and you speed them up, and they they become unplayable. Games like Load Runner and things yeah. like that, where you just speeds across the screen and right into a bad guy. Or, 
yeah. trap or something like that. Yeah, that, that was actually a big problem on the on the Laser One Twenty Eight because it had the overclocked CPU option as well, and and it had three speeds: one megahertz, <laughs> two point two or something, and three point six. And most stuff wouldn't run at three point six; it would actually just crash uh, most software. So you didn't actually get to use that option much. But the double speed was great. So they didn't have the the acceleration completely working on the laser. That's good to know. Yeah, I mean, I think it was probably hardware-wise it was fine, but there just seemed to be a lot of software that didn't cope with it. My guess is it messed up interrupt timing or something like that. Yeah, that's interesting, because I, I know that the, the accelerators for the 2E, for the Apple II line, the 2 Plus and the 2E, the, those all ran basically at 3 megahertz as well. There was the the rocket chip, which I think went at 5 and 10 megahertz, and there was a zip chip that went at 4 and 8 megahertz. But most of them, like the the transwarp card and the the, the Titan accelerators, those all ran at three point six. And as long as you set your slot speeds and you were kind of careful, you could everything pretty much ran at, at those speeds, except those games that relied on machine timing. Yeah, I think uh, I think they had a much better sword. I'm pretty sure the laser was literally just an overclock on on the stock CPU because the gotcha. you know the, that characteristic Apple beep would actually oh. was actually higher pitched because <laughs> it was actually beeping <laughs> faster. Uh, whereas, so a friend of mine had a 2C with a 10 megahertz zip chip in it, and uh, I was very, very jealous of that. Um, but and that thing just screamed. But everything ran perfectly normal on it, and had no trouble with it at all. But it just screamed in all the ways that you wanted it to scream. So uh, that was kind of an awesome machine. Yeah, definitely watching Apple Works do its thing at, at eight or ten megahertz is impressive after one megahertz for so many years. Yeah, yeah, and he actually wrote his own. Uh, version of Unix on it, and oh, wow. uh, he did all of the text, just uh, rendering the text in double high res, uh, so he could get you know special characters and, and better uh, uh, density on the text, um, and he was able to do that no problem because of the zip chip. Nice. Uh, you'd mentioned that you know we, we talk a lot about the the monitors failing, um, and if you're an Apple three enthusiast, you'll notice that you know the the big I don't know if it's failing necessarily, but um, the big problem with the Apple threes these days is that floppy drive that seems just to go out of, out of, out of alignment or out of acceptable speed all the time. I mean, I find myself constantly having to readjust those things. Tony Diaz, who is the sponsor for Kansas Fest every year, he usually gives a session or two on how to, you know, clean and repair a various piece of Apple II hardware. One that he likes to give a lot is is repairing the the three and a half inch drive mechanisms because you know we all have them and and it's always a, it's a perennially popular topic. Uh, it's not it's not difficult. It's just that not everybody knows how to do it and. So he's finally decided to to make that available to everybody. If you go to YouTube.com, we'll have the link in the show notes. He's got a video up that, that goes through step-by-step step on on what you need to know about cleaning, adjusting, and repairing your 3.5-inch drive. Definitely well worth several viewings. And the, the Apple III had the full-height 5.25-inch drive, right? So that was, was that the same drive that was in the Apple II? Uh, yeah, it's, it's basically the... So the same drive. It's just the the analog logic card was different okay. for the three than than the the disc two controller right, right. for the Apple two. Okay, because yeah, so the disc two drives their issue was they were belt drive, and uh, so there was literally a little rubber band in there, and the uh, the belt would stretch over time, so uh, they would slow down or uh, yeah, they would slow down over time because the belt would stretch, and uh, so hmm. that's why they kind of had to 
And the, the danger with those was that uh, over time, you know, users would, if you were not fastidious about, about checking the speed on it, over time it would still work. It's just your disks would be getting written at a different speed, and then they wouldn't read back later. If you ever went back and corrected the speed on it, uh, a bunch of your disks were no longer readable because they you know, been gradually slowed down as the drive was slowing down. Uh, so you kind of had to be uh, meticulous about checking the speeds. So you didn't accidentally write a bunch of disks that you then couldn't read back after you fixed it. Well, it is an interesting form of copy protection. Yes, that's right. But uh, yeah, they fixed all that with the later the, the duo disks and you know the later uh, the half height drives were all direct drives, so they didn't have that issue. We talked about acceleration, you know, the, the transwarp and things like that. Apparently, it's now going to be possible to have 16 megabytes of RAM in your Apple IIe. I, I don't know why on earth you would want that much memory, uh, but Matt Jenkins is working on a prototype for a RAMWorks clone that he calls Scramworks, and he was going to do an 8 meg version, but he said it was just as easy to do a 16 meg card. So if you want it, I guess you'll be able to get that much memory. That's witchcraft. Although, uh, I will say that I had, uh, so, so I mentioned earlier, the Laser 128 had the uh, RAM expansion capability inside the machine. Uh, if you open, crack open the case, there was actually an unpopulated uh, kind of RAM expansion board. And if you, uh, if you populated it, uh, which I did, I stuck a bunch of chips in there, and uh, you could get it up to 512K. And the way it worked was actually just as a RAM disk in Protoss. Uh, so it was, you, you couldn't use it for anything else and obviously you couldn't use it as system memory but uh, you could use it as a, as a RAM disk and so that was really useful uh, you know this was sort of pre, pre hard drives so it, sure. was, it was a way to have uh, mass storage when you were developing code it was a place to put your temp files for the, you know, for the assembler or things like that uh, and what it was really great for was downloading software from, from BBS's because <laughs> uh, frequently you know you'd have uh, if you didn't have enough floppy drives or frequently the uh, the files were too large to fit on one on one drive so on one disk so you wouldn't have to you'd have to babysit the download because you'd have to swap disks in the middle of it um, so this saved you having to do that so you could do those really long overnight downloads of you know multi-disk games I mean uh, legally obtained shareware software without having to babysit it so that was pretty slick I know a lot of people well not a lot but I know that some people uh, this uh, this especially seemed to be a popular thing to do for people who were big AppleWorks fans, was you would get the what is it the, the RAM saver is that what it was called? I'm, I'm drawing a blank off the top. It's a battery backed up RAM solution for your Apple II. So when you shut the computer off, memory wasn't lost. So you could set up this RAM disk, load up AppleWorks and all your files in there, and when you powered it up, it was just instantly there. That's right. I'd forgotten about that. I remember the ads for that in the magazines now that you say it. And yeah, which would have been really quite powerful, actually. I'm going to have to get a hold of one of those things and try that out. So we talked a lot about hardware that works in or with the Apple II itself. Uh, this is a piece of hardware that's not specifically for the Apple. It is sort of because... All right, I'll just get into this. Charles Mangan probably know that name from he's the guy who put a mac mini inside a disc 2 drive and then he put a i think another mac mini in an apple 2c case and last year he came to kansas fest and he's got these these usb joystick connectors that allow you to use uh, your old craft joystick apple 2 joystick on your modern platform or you can get one going the other way so you can use a modern usb joystick on your old apple 2 got a lot of great stuff like that he has also come up with this disc two-style USB SD card reader. So basically it's a 
a 3D printed uh, SD card reader that looks like a mini a miniature disc two drive. I mean, the little red light comes on front uh, on the front and everything. It's it's pretty darn cool. Um, he's got a a demo video that that you can watch on YouTube. Uh, you can buy these things. The the SD card reader is fifty dollars uh, from from his retro connector Etsy store. He's also got a an Apple II. And this is to me really cool. This is it's a it's a 3D printed Apple II case for your Raspberry Pi. So it's a mini Apple II case, and and you can tell him when you order this whether you want the black Bell and Howell Apple II Plus or an Apple IIe Platinum or the standard beige. And these these and he will print this out for you. The case is is hand painted, and it's a case for your Raspberry Pi card, which I think is really darn cool. And these these are both adorable. And the attention to detail on them is fantastic. So, yeah, run, don't walk to his Etsy store. Uh, the Raspberry Pi case is a little more expensive. That's $115. But, yeah, I, I can't see why you wouldn't want one of these, especially, you know, no self-respecting Apple II fan should be without this stuff. Now, we talked about Mike Willegal's Apple One uh, replication, uh, Apple One replica boards. Now, in Mike's case, it, it is a look-alike so that when you hold this thing up to a real Apple one, unless you were really looking closely and you really knew what you were doing, you wouldn't be able to tell the difference. Uh, but Vince Briel, who is another hardware hacker extraordinaire type, he also has um, an Apple one replica. He calls it the replica, the replica one plus. This is a, a hobby kit that you make yourself, uh, but it uses modern parts to emulate an, an Apple One. Earlier this year, he had released the 10th anniversary edition, and it was had kind of the, the red board and uh, had the special 10th anniversary edition silk screened on the PCB. He ran out of those pretty quickly, so he released a second run, which is basically the same as the first one. It's just that you get the standard green PCB instead of the pretty red one. So the replica one uh, you can order from from Vince. Uh, the kit is $149. He will assemble it for you. That's an additional $50. It's $199 if you do it that way. And then you can also buy there's a slot expander and a couple of other um, accessories that you can buy and, and plug in. I know that every year at Kansas, well, not every year, but for the past few, maybe five or six years at Kansas Fest, he's showed up and done interactive sessions where he will sell you one of these and then help you put it together and test it. And, and a lot of people do this. I did it one year. It's, it's great fun. You know, you don't have to know anything about soldering. He'll, he'll help you. It's, it's very simple. I, I know that soldering can be a scary thing because it's, it's hot metal touching stuff. And that's never, that's always scary for, for new people. And this year, Vince will be back at Kansas Fest. He's announced another uh, workshop uh, and it looks like this year he is going to be he'll be selling something called the Superboard 3, which is based on the Ohio Scientific Superboard. If you're into OSI computers, I don't know how many Apple II fans out there are into that, but he he has a re a replica kit for one of those that that he'll sell and help you build. He'll be doing a workshop a workshop on the Replica One, as well as the Pocket Term, which is a single board terminal using a parallax propeller microcontroller to emulate a VT100 terminal, and he will also be doing his micro-KIM, which is a reduced-sized replica of the KIM-1. So lots of interesting and great stuff happening at Kansas Fest this year. If you're not going, I think you're really going to be missing out. Yeah, Vince's kits are, are fantastic. They're so well put together and uh, really nice way to, to learn how to solder. And when you're done, you have something really cool you can play with. 
Are you going to attend one of his sessions at Kansas Fest, Quinn? Well, if I'm going to Kansas Fest, then that seems like a no-brainer. And are you going to Kansas Fest, Quinn? Well, I'm seriously considering it. What does that mean? Well, I would have, I, I would say I'm uh, perhaps the typical first-time goer to Kansas Fest. I'm interested, but have questions, and I'm unsure what it's all about exactly. Well, as someone who's been going for a while now, here's your chance to ask. <laughs> all right. Uh, so it's, it, it sounds... See how smooth that was. That, yeah, good segue. Uh, I couldn't tell. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, the whole thing sounds like it's a lot of fun. Uh, a lot of like-minded kinds of folks. Um, mm-hmm. I guess uh, it seems like it's quite long for a conference, six days. So I'm wondering, my first question, I guess, is what do you, what activities are there to fill all of that time? You'd be surprised, actually. It's it's um, During the day, it's, it's sessions given by the attendees, usually. Um, in, in years past, way, way, way past, Apple itself would show up because I think Kansas Fest evolved from... The Apple Fest, Apple Developers Conference, which was put on at one point by Apple, and then it was put on by somebody else, and Apple would show up and give sessions, and then it was put on, and Apple no longer showed up because they didn't want to be talking about the Apple II anymore. But there's a, a wide variety of, of sessions that, that take place during the day. You know, you you got everything from from the latest programming techniques to software releases. You've got the hardware sessions that go on that we've talked about. you got me. I'm going to be talking about the Apple III stuff because that's what I like to do. Martin Hay, is, who's been showing up recently, for example, he, he did sessions on, on boot code tracing and how to crack your, your favorite piece of Apple II software that you were never able to copy in your youth. And, and there's less specific stuff. So uh, Melissa Barron, who is, she does glitch art. She's showed up recently. She did, a, she and her, um, I think they're married. She and her husband, Dan, uh, who we talk, we refer to him, I think, a lot as crew. He does a, a lot of um, music and, and Apple II uh, visual art. They did a session on how to create your own flappy jackets out of construction paper and, and, and other interesting materials to make them more than just the plain folded piece of white paper, if you want. So, I mean, there's all kinds of stuff that goes on all week long. And in the evenings, you know, we, we tend to, uh, I think, you know, we, we go out to a couple of local restaurants and I know that what there's, if you're a night owl, then there are late night runs to steak and shake at three in the morning and that sort of thing. So it's really is nonstop action. I, I thought the first time when I went that, that I would, you know, get bored quickly and, and I it just never did because there was always more stuff to do. Okay. So the, the all day, every day, it's like, there's lots Lots, lots to do, in other words. Yes, like. okay. absolutely. Yeah. Uh, are, are all of the sessions that people are doing all listed on the website? Or? I think most of them are. There are some, some people who like to do surprise releases or, you know, the, they'll, they've got something, a big secret planned and they don't want to spoil it. So it'll be, you know, a mystery hardware session. And it might be, you know, the, the release of the Ethernet 2 or... Uh, you know, a few years back, it was the release of, of the TCP IP stack for the Apple II GS and the web browser that went along with it, you know, which shocked everybody. And so I, I think I think you'll see kind of more the more common ones listed there, and there might be a few that they're not ready to announce yet. Okay. Is there like a vendor area as well where you can buy cool bits? Every Saturday morning, there's a, a, a vendor fair, and it's recently also become an exhibition thing, so you can set up your cool stuff and show off to other people, but... Uh, Saturday morning, I think for like four to six hours. Yeah, there's there's a, a, a vendor fair that goes on, and you can you can buy and sell and swap. 
Okay. And of course, then there are people there who have stuff that they're just going to sell. And, you, you know, if you want to buy something, you can, you know, make an offer or whatever. There's nothing stopping that from happening. And Sean Fahey, who runs a2central.com, he has, I guess, several garages full of Apple II stuff. And his wife recently has been like, get rid of it, get rid of it, get rid of some of that stuff. So the past few years, he showed up uh, with a bus full of stuff that's, you know, kind of a... Uh, I'm putting this out here. Take what you want. And if you feel like tipping me, there's a jar over there kind of a thing. Okay. Is there a, a good mix of people that come, you know, men, women, people from all walks of life? Um, <laughs> well, it's mostly middle-aged, aging <laughs> white men, unfortunately. Okay. okay. Uh, there are definitely some women who show up every year. Uh, Melissa's been coming regularly, like I said. I know that Margaret Anderson, she's kind of an Apple II game programmer from way back. She shows up. It's not just all all pasty white. And <laughs> Good to know. <laughs> Good to know. Okay. Well, it sounds, sounds pretty great. Unfortunately, uh, you've already missed the, the um, early bird pricing that ended June 1st, but you can still register and, and show up. So. It sounds great. Is this uh, is this podcast going to come out before the end of registration? <laughs> well, uh, yes, yes. I, I'm hoping to get this up here in the next day or two. Okay, because because uh, I, I think I can announce that I'm going to come this year. So uh, everyone who's listening to this should register quick and make sure that I'm not the only first timer there. I'm pretty certain that you won't be the only first time. You might be the only first timer female there. But <laughs> Uh, we did have a couple of other. This this happened a while back now. See, unfortunately, because of the of the gap between when Ken stopped and Open Apple went on hiatus for a couple of months, the news has sort of built up, and some of these items are sort of slipping into the past a little bit. But a couple that are probably worth mentioning. One is that that VCF Southeast 2.0 happened. The original news item that I had on the spreadsheet was about the Kickstarter funding project that they had for VCF Southeast 2.0. That was successful. Uh, and it looks like the actual the actual convention happened May 3rd and 4th in Roswell, Georgia. I think that the uh, Apple Pop-Up Museum that was there last year and was such a, a popular thing uh, was back. I don't see, I'm not seeing any immediate links to, to pictures or anything, but I, I imagine if you look around online, they're out there and I'll, I've, if I find them, I'll put a link in the show notes. But it, it's neat to see that these conventions are happening and that new ones are starting up like this. You know, Kansas Fest has been around for years and years. The original VCF out on the West Coast happened in the late 90s and hasn't happened since. So it's it's great to see some things kind of popping up to, to take their place. The past few years, we've seen a lot of, of books published for the Apple II. Uh, David Finnegan, we mentioned him earlier. Uh, as part of the Ethernet project, he also recently, uh, recently, well, I guess not recently anymore, published the um, the new Apple II user's guide. The what's where in the Apple II has been reproduced as a has been has been republished as a as an ebook that you can buy. It's very cool. I suggest you check it out if you haven't already. If you're into programming or design at all, that book is is invaluable because it outlines basically every memory position in the Apple II, the ROM all that stuff. And it looks like Roger Wagner's assembly lines is going to be republished along with a lost volume two. So what this is, is that assembly lines was originally a column in soft talk magazine and they gathered up 
these columns and published uh, them as a book called Assembly Lines. And Roger had enough material for volume two that he was going to publish. And then Soft Talk stopped publishing and they went under. All of that, that stuff that he had collected is now going to be re-released and his original will be republished as well. So if you're at all interested in, 60, in learning 6502 assembly language, uh, this book and this series of columns uh, has been one of the most highly recommended over the years for, for beginners. So I would, I would suggest not missing this. And I'm really excited to seeing this stuff republished. Uh, I think probably like a lot of people, I grew up in sort of a, a remote area, and of course, pre-internet, a lot of the problem learning program in those days was just getting information, uh, getting the books that had this information in it was, you know, that was just gold. So uh, uh, a lot of us were limited to uh, whatever sad little books about basic were in the local library <laughs> and or whatever we could just figure out by banging away on our own for, for hours and hours. So it's, it's great that you can kind of pick this stuff up now and learn assembly language now on an Apple II and have resources like this at your fingertips is awesome. A lot of the books these days, you know, they've been out of print for years. The libraries got rid of their copies a long time ago. So you are limited to searching whatever happens to be available on, you know, a books and in and, and the used marketplaces or eBay, you know, where you're going to pay a hundred bucks for, for one of these books. And yeah, there there are ongoing scanning projects to turn all the of these things into digital documents, and and there's a lot of progress there. But there's still a lot of stuff that's not easily available to to somebody who wants to says, "Hey, I got twenty bucks to throw at you. Where can I get this?" Well, you can't anymore unless you, you know, it, it's going to require a lot of work. So when things like this come back up, you know, it's 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 really it's refreshing, and this is happening. Yeah, this information has to be preserved if we want to keep using these machines. I mean, if someone wants to sit down and write a printer driver for, you know, the Apple IIe or something now, it could be very difficult to do that because the books that would help you do that are long gone. An interesting project that's happening that's not really, I guess it's more of a hardware-related thing. Brutal Deluxe, the, the French programming supergroup, uh, that's uh, Antoine and Olivier, have decided that they're going to determine how many Apple II GSs were made. Apple, of course, is notorious for not releasing any information, the behind-the-scenes stuff about sales or numbers or anything. So we don't actually know how many 2GSs were made. We don't know, you know, the, the run of serial numbers or anything like that. But th these guys, being the, the geniuses that they are, have come up with a an algorithm where if you contribute your serial number to them, and they're, they're building this database, and they're kind of they're able to... I guess, intelligently estimate how many were produced by year. And the more numbers they get, the, the more accurate their estimate becomes. So if you have a stack of two GSs, you know, send them an email that's got your serial numbers in it, contribute to the project and, and help make it a better thing. And I'd like to throw a shameless plug out to Google Lux for the awesome work that they're doing with uh, modern development on the 2GS. You know, they're doing some great cross-platform tools. Uh, you know, they've got a sprite compiler and some really, really cool other stuff. If you want to write a game now for the 2GS using their tools, it's so much easier than it was back then. Yeah, what's neat about them, other than the fact that they're still publishing 2GS software, which is really cool, is that they seem to be very good at writing documentation about this that that even somebody who really doesn't understand that much about 2GS sprites, for example, can read through this and, and figure out what's going on. So it's not, I mean, there, there's definitely advanced information in there and you'll learn a lot 
even if you've been doing this stuff for decades, but if you're a beginner, you're not going to be lost three paragraphs in. Yeah, and their, their dedication to the platform is just astounding. They were probably single-handedly responsible for my sticking with the GS as long as I did. You know, the, their group and the predecessors, you know, Ninja Force and FTA and those guys were cranking out, both cranking out software and just demonstrating what the machine was capable of. It sort of kept you, kept you dedicated to it long after uh, your friends were all running uh, PCs. Inspiring generations of 2GS programmers. <laughs> That's right. Quinn, do you watch a lot of television? I do. I'm a big fan of the, the new Golden Age shows, uh, Walking Dead and, and, and so on. Have you been uh, keeping up with this new show, um, uh, Halt and Catch Fire? I have, yes, actually. It's gotten really quite good. Yeah, so so um, you and I talked about this a while back, I think, when the first episode came out. Mm-hmm. And we were kind of like, well, this looks good, but you know, we'll kind of reserve judgment and see how it goes. And so you're, you're pleased with the progression of the show so far? Yeah. The, I found the first episode was a little bumpy because I got a little too caught up in the, uh, the technical and legal errors in it. Uh, <laughs> as someone who, of course, we lived through that era and I'm also something of a student of it. Uh, I'm really fascinated by the interactions between all those early computer companies, how, you know, when they were all suing each other and so on. And uh, this big first big shakeout was happening, and uh, so they got a lot of that stuff wrong, uh, and they got the story of the title phrase of the show wrong, which also <laughs> bothered me. But uh, quickly, they got past all that, and they just got into the character development. And as a character drama that happens to be set in the eighties, uh, it's actually quite turning out to be quite good. Yeah. So for those who don't who who don't know what we're talking about, Halt and Catch Fire is a show on AMC, which is sort of like if this were this is like Mad Men, but instead of for the sales industry, it's for the early computer industry, and it's based on a, a fictional company called Cardiff, I think, uh, based in Texas, and I think it's sort of loosely based on the story of Compaq and their their efforts to reverse engineer IBM's BIOS and turn that into a viable computer project, but to do it clean room and legally so that they weren't just ripping off code and stamping it on the chips. The reason that, that so many of the, the early clones failed was because they did they just stole the code and, and reburned chips and, and stuck them in their own machines and sold them. And in fact, it may have been Franklin who got caught doing this. And the reason Apple was able to catch them was because the typos were the same in the, in the, in the, the code comments. And that's how they knew that they had stolen Apple's code and put it in the Franklin. And, you know, courts take a dim view of that sort of thing and, and shut them down pretty quickly. Well, Compaq figured out that if they were going to be successful at doing this, they were going to have to, to do a clean room reverse engineering, which means that the people who are writing the BIOS code were not able to see IBM's code. And yet they had to come up with a way to make it run IBM's hardware. And so... And, and, you know, a lot of it's, it's fictionalized and, and they take a lot of shortcuts because, you know, you, you got an hour long drama television show and sometimes sometimes the truth doesn't make a good story. And so they fudge things because, I mean, you're watching the TV show because you're watching a story, not because you're watching a documentary. And as with most television shows, when you the first couple of episodes, especially if it's a character driven drama like this one can be difficult because the actors aren't familiar with their characters really and the writers don't really haven't really fleshed out storylines and things and so they can be sort of rough but I think they've really done a good job of kind of overcoming those initial bumps and the story is great 
so far. I love it. Yeah, they're hitting their stride, and, and it's honestly a good watch for anybody who just grew up in the 80s because they, they get all the stuff right that Hollywood gets right, which is, you know, the, the soda cans are period correct, and the wallpaper, and the cars, and the hairstyles are all correct, and so, it, yeah, it's it's just a great period piece, uh, and it's also a great sort of exploration of, of possibly one of the first good examples of a disruptive technology, you know, these home computers coming in and shaking up the computer industry, which until then was built on mainframes with service contracts and the whole profit model and structure of the companies that did that was all wrong for home computers. So uh, it's kind of a good exploration of that as well. Now, it seems like maybe they're starting to pay attention to, to their online criticism. I have no evidence of this directly other than that the little kind of in-jokes and Easter eggs that they're throwing in there are starting to get better. Um, spoiler alert here, folks. The, the most recent episode, uh, there was a lot of talk about the the mainframe computer game Adventure and how they, the, the engineers would stay late to, to play this game. And, and they, there's a lot of in-jokes and things that happened in the game that they got right in the dialogue of the show. Yeah, and they, uh, they make a number of references to Apple also, which is pretty entertaining because, of course, at, at the time, Apple was, in fact, the 800-pound gorilla uh, in the home computer market. And... Uh, so it's funny to hear them talk about Apple that way. You know, so we're nowadays so used to Apple being the underdog in every market. That's true. Yeah. Now, of course, no no show is perfect without its little problems. And I'm a guy who notices stuff like this. I'm sure you are too, Quinn. Yeah. I the one of the things that really kind of bugs me. There's there's the the programmer Cameron Howe. Uh, she's this hotshot hacker, and she's the the. She's the programmer that they've hired to to rewrite the to write the BIOS code without seeing IBM's code, and you know she's going through the struggles and, and pulling her hair out and why isn't this working and this and that. Every time they show her desk, the computer on the desk changes. Sometimes it's a TRS-80. I saw the camera panned at one point, and you saw like the first part of the logo, the the Commodore PC-10 badge that used to be on the front of those desktops that Commodore made was there, and, and another time it was like a, a VT100 clone. It drives me nuts when they do that, and I'm not sure why, other than maybe they, they have a limited number of these props, and they just sort of move them around from scene to scene, and they don't keep track of what goes where as they shoot stuff. Yeah, that, that's been bothering me a little bit, too. Of course, I'm sure anyone listening to this show is going to do the same thing, which is fixate on the computers that are in the desks and in the background and, and so on to see what everyone has on their on their desks. And same with the computer that's in the uh, home office of one of the main characters. Uh, it's changed a couple of times. I'm mm, yeah. pretty sure it was an <laughs> Apple II at one point, but now this most recent, it was some sort of it was something else that I didn't recognize. Uh, so, yeah, I'm not sure what's going on there, but. Yeah. So, you know, I mean, if you can get past those little nitpicks, though, it's a great show. Uh, definitely worth a watch. Sure. Um, now, I I tend not to be that much of a sitcom kind of guy, but there's a show called The Goldbergs, and it's produced by this actor, Adam Goldberg. You've seen him in stuff like Saving Private Ryan. Uh, I remember the first time I saw him was in, remember seeing him was in, in Friends. He was Chandler's weirdo roommate for a couple of episodes. When, when Joey moved out, um, he's produced this television show based on his life growing up in the 80s called The Goldbergs. It's, uh, it airs on ABC every week. And I, and, and humor is, is really subjective and I'm, I'm not, I'm not known for having a huge sense of humor. The Goldbergs, to me, isn't funny at all, so I have a hard time – I had a hard time watching it. I've only watched the first two episodes, but I guess Adam grew up with an Apple II in his house because there's a scene where his father 
uh, is trying to learn how to use this thing and he plugs the disc in. Now they cut to the monitor and there's, it's, I swear the text is, is like, he types like catalog or something and the C is the size of a baseball. It's obviously not the text being generated by the Apple II. And, you know, the, the humor beat thing is, it, it, you know, he uses it for a second, cut to him sitting there with a smoking melted disc. And, um, but what's neat about, what is neat about it is that all of these, all of the scenes in the show are generated from his life experiences. And, and during the credits, you get to see the video that he took as a youth on his, this little portable eight millimeter he had that, that inspired each scene. So you get to see Adam actually using his Apple II in the 80s. And I thought that was kind of cool. That would be cool. Yeah, I haven't, I haven't seen the show, but it might be worth seeing the episode just for that. Yeah, so check out the first episode. And if you if you got a you know a DVR or something, I I would download it and just like fast forward to scenes that look interesting and and because a lot of some of it is just like pointless pop culture references thrown into in there to look cool and say I was there, which drives me nuts. But you know, and maybe the show will get better. Uh, again, this is a a first year freshman freshman comedy, so a couple of. Uh, software releases here that I guess are worth mentioning. The, we talked about Sheppy a little bit earlier. His Sweet 16 2GS emulator that he released. He released version 3.0 at last year's Kansas Fest. Uh, he's now updated it to 3.0.3. So if you use that, definitely uh, worth upgrading to the latest version. He's got his uh, release notes. I'll have a, a link to that in the show notes to talk about the stuff that he's fixed. Now, I know that with Yosemite, the announcement of Yosemite, they've talked about, a, I guess, a retiring Xcode and moving to something called Swift. Is that right? Uh, well, not, not exactly. Um, so Xcode, uh, Xcode is still the IDE. Uh, yeah, so the, the bomb they dropped at WWDC was they introduced a new programming language, and uh, it's sort of going to presumably coexist, for the most part, with Objective-C for a while, and presumably the intention is to eventually uh, switch over to Swift. Um, so... It'll be interesting to see. It'll be a, probably a, a couple of years before that really happens, but, uh, but uh, that was a bombshell for sure. Okay, because I, I know that there was some discussion about like you know uh, whether Sheppy's code was going to have to be rewritten from the ground up, and I, I think that it is going to for for this new language. But yeah, someday. I mean, it's going to be a while. The platform is still pretty pretty married to Objective C. I mean, they, Apple needed to do something uh, because, you know, Objective C still has, it's a, a nice modern language, but it still has a lot of baggage from the 1970s being a C derivative language, uh, single pass, you know, header files and so on. True. Um, so, and you can't, you know, you can't evolve a horse into a Model T. At some point, you got to throw everything away and start over. So that's... You got to shoot the horse. <laughs> yeah. So that's, that's what Swift is. And um, wisely, Apple knows it's going to take a couple of years to make that transition. So... Um, okay. So he's got plenty of time. Do you hear that, Jeppy? You got plenty of time. Lots of time. I can say that because he doesn't listen yeah. to the show. Um, uh, Silver and Castle has been re- uh, updated to version nine point five point one. For those who don't know, Silver and Castle is an adventure game um, for your Apple Two GS. This game was originally written because the programmers who wrote the Wizardry series said that Wizardry was so complex that it couldn't be written in basic. It had to be written in assembly. And, and of course, Apple II programmers being the group that they are said, I don't think that's true. And somebody went out and, and wrote this game. Now, by now, it's it's definitely moved beyond just the basic only components that it used to be. The original Silver Castle was all in AppleSoft Basic, and uh, as it's expanded and grown over the years, it's since moved away from that because it met the challenge of oh yes, this can be written in 
in basic. So if you are uh, if you're a fan of this game like I am, uh, the latest version is 9.5.1. You can get that now from um, Jeff Fink, who, who wrote the game. Um, are you are you a, an adventure gamer, Quinn? Big time, yeah. Uh, actually, the biggest project I ever built for the 2GS was an RPG. It was actually uh, my dream was to recreate Ultima Six because um, I'm a massive Ultima fan, and uh, I got teased by I don't know if you've bit of trivia here. So the Ultima Six box, uh, you know, for the PC or other platforms, the box has a reference to the Apple IIGS in fine print on the back. I was not aware and, of that. Yeah, so it, 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 you know, it's listing all the copyrights that belong to other people, sort of a legal disclaimer, and uh, it mentions that the Apple IIGS is a trademark of, of Apple. And uh, so that started, you know, there's this rumor that they were going to release Ultima 6 for the 2GS, and then they never did because they stopped supporting a platform, and, the, you know, the rumor mill was swirling, did, did it ever exist? Is there some prototype of it out there? Because that was sort of the ultimate Ultima was, was 6. It was kind of the, yeah. the pinnacle of the series, and it kind of went down, downhill after that, in my opinion. And uh, so I wanted it so badly that I basically decided to sit down and write it, and I wrote a tile-based uh, RPG engine uh, of that flavor, I never quite got it to the point of releasing it. Uh, it was a little too buggy in the end, but it is a full game, uh, which I hopefully still have on floppies somewhere. <laughs> I haven't overridden uh, that one. Yeah, I sure hope not, because uh, yeah, there's a couple of years of my life in that one. But um, yeah, I think I've learned. I think I've learned since then that Ultima uh, that Ultima never Ultima Six never did exist for the for the GS. Uh, in fact, I think I learned that just recently. There was an update on the uh, what is the two GS website uh, about it because they had a slot in their games list for it. Again, on the assumption that it may exist in prototype form somewhere, but uh, I think uh, I think someone from Origin, possibly even Richard Garriott, actually made a statement recently that uh, it never existed, and that by the time they were done with Ultima Five, they had already tooled up for PC development, and that was already their focus. So uh, it uh, never existed or had intended to exist. Well, maybe you can convince Richard Garriott to release your version as, as the unofficial Ultima 6 for the 2GS. Yeah, well, I actually, uh, so after I got the engine up and running, I actually considered, well, okay, I've got an engine that's capable of, of running some facsimile of Ultima 6, and I thought I just need the assets and, and the maps and so on, uh, you know, just need the content. So I actually, my uh, naive, I would say probably 15-year-old self, uh, wrote a letter to Origin and said, "Hey, I've got this engine. Uh, I'd like to make Ultima. I'd like to port Ultima Six to GS. Can I have your content?" <laughs> and uh, something along those lines. I may have offered to, I don't know, uh, let them release it or who knows. But uh, I got a very nasty letter, a uh, cease and desist letter from uh, from Origin, and uh, which I think I still have in a box somewhere. It's pretty pretty priceless. Uh, explaining in no uncertain terms how important their IP was to them and that I should cease and desist all such development immediately. So You should frame that or at least scan it and post it somewhere. Yeah, I really hope I still have it somewhere because uh, it would be pretty great. And of course, yeah, the, I mean, I was certainly no threat to their empire. But, uh, <laughs> it was funny to be treated as such. Yeah, I guess I guess in those days you never really knew. Yeah, well, and of course the lawyer's answer is always going to be that, so... Basic has turned fifty, the the, uh, the the programming language, and uh, was took a moment to to write an, an article on Gizmodo about how he wrote his version of Integer Basic for the original Apple from scratch. Um, and as I recall, that was done with basically a you know, pencil and, and a pad of paper. And so that article is definitely worth checking out. And what I really appreciate about what Gizmodo did here was that it's it's basically I think it's entirely his. 
he's writing unedited. I mean, there's no changes or anything to it. So you, so you can really hear, like if you've ever heard Steve give one of his speeches or, or uh, seen him on YouTube uh, talking about this stuff, he's got a very distinct voice. And, and when you read this article, you can hear him saying that. I found that with his book, uh, I Was, as well. His, uh, I could hear him sort of reading it to me. Yeah, I think that was written, ghost written by Gina Smith. Oh, is that right? Okay, okay. Yeah, so it really sounds like uh, him. Yeah, I, I think she did a really good job of making sure that it was still. It was, you know, we'll, we'll clean the stories up so that they, are, you know, make them, I guess, fit in chapters for publication. But, but definitely a, a good job of making sure it still sounded like uh, Steve's voice. Yeah, the, the, the tone definitely has that. Je ne sais was. All right, and I guess finally, uh, one quick note here, just to rub the Apple III thing in everybody's face one more time. Uh, the Apple III RTR, the ready-to-run emulator, is available from uh, DataJerk's webpage. You can download it now. If you're interested in, in using an Apple III, they, they finally got emulation working in MESS, the MESS emulator system. Well, setting up and getting MESS running is exactly that. It's, it's a bit of a mess. It's difficult. It's painful. And... Egan uh, Data Jerk has taken all of the hard work out of that. It, it comes loaded with a bunch of ready-to-use software and hardware configurations. And, and if you're, I know you can do this with um, the Windows scripting host or even probably batch files. And I'm pretty sure you could do the same thing with AppleScript. You can you just launch this the the mess the mess executable with a bunch of different options and that's what your apple 3 hardware will look like in emulation so definitely worth checking that out the apple 3 has always been kind of a fascinating machine to me yeah i wonder is there some sort of podcast or something where i could learn more why quinn you silver tongue w <laughs> <laughs> uh so i do a, a monthly well i guess what we were originally going to do like every two weeks or every three weeks and it looks like it's going to be every month uh, I, do, I now do a podcast with Paul Hagstrom called Drop Three Inches, which is based on Apple Apple Computer's uh, tech support recommendation to drop your Apple three three inches onto a desk to reseat the chips. Um, and you can check that out. Uh, we'll have a link in the show notes. We've published two episodes. It's sort of interesting as we publish these. The people who worked on worked at Apple at the time have been. I guess listening, and they've been eager to talk about this. So we've got a, a we actually have some some great guests lined up for future episodes. Uh, so if you're interested in the history of the Apple III, um, tune in. I think it's I think we do a, a pretty good job, if I do say so myself. Yeah, I have to concur. I've listened to both episodes, and uh, I'm really enjoying it. I'm learning a lot. The Apple III is genuinely something I've always been interested in. I used to see pictures of it in the magazines, and it was this sort of bizarre alien thing that was kind of Apple II like but not and I was just always really interested in what this thing was and then it just kind of quietly vanished and never really learned much about it. So. Well and I think that's been the experience of a lot of Apple II users. I as I related in the, the podcast I, I had hands-on experience with mine back in the day because my father used to bring us home from work every weekend uh, but I you know even when I when I recently took a three to Kansas Fest for the first time, I had Apple II users walk in and go, what is that? Or say, I've never been in a room with one of these things before. And, and a lot of that has to do with the fact that it didn't sell well at all uh, because of the reputation that it got and because it was very expensive. It was aimed at the small business user. It wasn't meant for the home user. And so nobody really had these things at home to, to play with. And so like, like you, Quinn, most people read about it in the magazine or saw pictures and went, 
what is this? And then, oh, God, this thing is terrible. And then it was gone. So. And will there be one at Kansas Fest? There will probably be several, I think, because I, I'm going to be giving some at least one presentation. And I know that Paul will probably bring his. And I think that I think Tony Diaz, we talked about his his Apple, uh, his Apple 3.5 inch drive maintenance session. I think he's going to give one on Apple 3 maintenance. So that'll be really cool. I'm looking forward to that, too. Awesome. I look forward to seeing it when I am in attendance for my first time ever. Well, I think you will have a great time, and I won't guarantee your money back if you don't, because I don't have that kind of money lying around. Uh, but I'm looking forward to seeing you there, Quinn. Excellent. And I think that pretty much uh, wraps up this month's episode of Open Apple. I know it's been kind of a rough ride recently, and, and with Ken not contributing his wisdom and, and structure to the show. This may be a little bit weird. I hope everybody still enjoys and sticks around. I, I think we've got some great stuff coming up and uh, we'll see you all in a month. Thanks for having me on the show. It was great. Oh, and thank you for being on the show. <laughs> no, no, thank you. <laughs> Bye everybody. Bye.